The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. Okay, so New Zealand again, right? We're starting yeah. a little popular down there. <laughs> Our guest is an American-born freelance writer living in Wellington, New Zealand. In between earning his Bachelor of Arts in English and Studies and Journalism, uh, led up to a publication called Rotnomics. Uh, he became a machinist as well. In between those two, he uh, provided technical support to the physics department at the University of California in Davis, which we're familiar with, and later at the Institute of Fundamental Sciences, Massey University, also in uh, New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Peter Dyer. Thank you. It's nice to be here. In 2019, October, after about eight years of research work, uh, you wrote on the subject of leaky buildings, which we know a little bit about here in Canada, in a yes. book titled Rotnomics, the story of New Zealand's leaky building disaster. One of the readers who was doing a review of the book said, in the absence of any sort of official New Zealand inquiry into this financial, social, and infrastructural disaster, then this is the only complete repository of information as the whys and the wherefores of this appalling scandal. Adam and I always like a good scandal. (laughs) So tell us how you ended up on that one. It's kind of a long story, I guess, but I'll make it as brief as possible. While I was at the Institute of Fundamental Sciences at Massey, I was on a locum. It was a 13-month locum, which means temporary position, filling in for somebody who was on leave. And after that, I got another short locum, a three-month locum, and after that, I couldn't find work in New Zealand. It was a bit puzzling, head-scratching, so I had an interest in journalism. I'd been writing for our hometown newspaper in Winters, California, and decided to see if I could go to journalism school. Well, I tried twice, and journalism school didn't want me either, so... So I guess uh, the next option was freelance. So I started writing and started getting some articles published. And the big break for me was getting an article published in a national magazine called North and South. And the uh, editor there was very uh, sort of a guiding shepherd to me, even though I'm sure she's younger than I am, and helped me along in a couple, three more articles of mine. And one of those, the first article was about the sale during the radical makeover of the New Zealand economy, which often is referred to here as Rogernomics, after the Minister of Finance, Roger Douglas, who was the prime engineer in that, very much paralleled the upheavals, economic and social upheavals in the UK and in North America of the early 80s, Reaganomics and Thatcheronomics. So I wrote an article about a dodgy housing deal that was done in that time in New Zealand happened to stumble across that dodgy deal because it involved the house we lived in, the house we just bought in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, where we live. And I thought I'd see if North and South was interested in this article, and they were. And then fast forward an exchange with the editor. She suggested I 
and write something about leaky buildings. And I said, I'd love to do that. So I did. I wrote an article and I got so interested in the article. It was published that uh, I couldn't stop looking into it. And fast forward a few years, my book Rottenomics was published. So how many friends did you make along the way when you were digging into that story? Actually, I don't know about friends, but I met <laughs> quite a few who were quite keen to talk to me about it. People in the industry, people who lived in these awful places. I didn't really have, I see what you're getting at. I didn't really have too many confrontations or challenges with, with anybody. It was mostly people who just were glad that they had a chance to tell a story. So, yeah. I was listening I, to one of your YouTube videos where you were doing some summary of the book. And one of the messages that I sort of got out of this, there were sometimes there was people who were reluctant to give you information that was public knowledge that they were holding back. Oh, yeah. Well, though, that would be people in government. And um, <laughs> no surprise there. <laughs> no, no surprise there. I guess the biggest example of that was I accidentally found out about a report about leaky buildings that had never been published, a government-mandated report. And wind back a few years, uh, there was a government report published in 2008. And that one was um, made public and official and all that. And I talked to some of the people who were involved in that report and found out that the data, the final data in the report had been edited, so to speak, by the government once it had been handed into the government. The figures had been edited. Uh, the original figures were there, but they were no longer the original figures. They were the classified as the extreme figures. And there was a new category called the consensus estimate. And the consensus estimate was something that the experts who had been consulted knew nothing about. And this became actually the official mainstream data for the press in New Zealand and for the mainstream discourse. So that was interesting enough to find out. And then somewhere along the way at a party at a friend's house, I was talking about this with a friend and he said, oh, well, there's another report. I said, tell me more. And um, he told me about a report that he had been involved in with personally that was commissioned a few years later in 2014 published in 2014, but was never released. So fast forward about 13 months of trying to get that report released and going past denials and then going past other obstacles and finally getting the New Zealand ombudsman on the case. And the New Zealand ombudsman, this lady, was magnificent. She got me the report and that report is part of the data from that report is in Rottenomics and a bit of the story of that report itself is also in Rottenomics. Bottom line is the government really didn't want to release these figures because they were hard to believe. They were figures that you wouldn't want to believe. I don't want to believe it, but the data is there. And so by that time, I was actually writing the book. That's when I came across the revelation of the new report. So eventually the book was published uh, in October 2019 with that report. And all the other data. A couple uh, of questions for you. I mean, you come across this first report published, presumably these were professionals, either engineers or somebody that was doing the studies on the failures in the buildings that fed the government with this data. And then, of course, the data was silenced, edited. It was edited, yeah. At some point, the original authors must be looking at what they discovered and then what was published and said, okay, this is wrong. 
Okay. I wouldn't classify these people as authors. The report was commissioned by the government agency that was commissioned is called PricewaterhouseCoopers, hmm? PwC. You've probably heard of them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a branch here in New Zealand and they actually wrote the report, handed it into the government, and then the government came out with a edited version. And they changed the original estimates and labeled them extreme estimates. And they came up with estimates called consensus estimates, which none of the experts who were involved in the report, as far as I know, knew anything about. I don't even know if PwC knew anything about them until the government gave them the data. But then PwC published the government's version of that report. Just for the benefit of our listeners, could you just give a little sort of uh, Cliff Notes 101 on the whole scandal, just to set the scene? On leaky buildings? Yeah. Starting in the, in the mid-90s, people started discovering houses that were rotting very quickly. And this disaster was reported in the paper. This problem was reported in the paper. And then not much more news about it until a few years later when it came back. And by that time, it was start, really starting to make headlines. And by um, the early 2000s, it was fairly well known as a, a national problem. And that the problem was that the New Zealand building industry was putting up houses that were not weather tight. And weather tight means able to withstand weather. All houses will leak. There's no getting around. All buildings will leak. The trick is to find a way to make that water evaporate or drain and or drain. And unfortunately, a lot of these new houses built with new building styles, the water didn't really drain or evaporate. And um, well, you both might be familiar with this. There was an outbreak of this just before it happened in New Zealand in the late 90s in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. So you know about that. Well, this is essentially the same thing. That was essentially leaky condos. Here it was leaky buildings of all sorts. But the buildings that got most publicity were houses that were going up in a series of building booms. And they were um, a lot like those leaky condos in design, kind of Mediterranean looking, not much of an overhang and, and it's kind of slapped up really quickly. And Water could get in, but it couldn't get out for a variety of reasons, for changes in materials, changes in design, changes in building practices. And there was a report done, government commissioned a report, the PwC report, published in 2008 about it. And those figures became part of the mainstream media. And somewhere in the few years after their report, people just stopped talking about it or gradually, it gradually faded into the background probably wasn't as newsworthy as when it first came out. But all of the people that I talked to, all of the builders and architects and designers who I talked to, without exception, and I talked to quite a few, told me that we're still building leaky buildings. The uh, divide in that group comes between people who think we've made some progress and people who think we've made very little. None of the professionals I talked to think that we have stopped building leaky buildings. And again, just to make clear, leaky buildings are buildings that can't handle water ingress. Water will get in at any building, but the building has to be designed and built so that water can either drain or evaporate or both. New Zealand Building Code, right? No, they didn't, in a short answer. The New Zealand Building Code is a performance-based building code, which is, was actually a brand new style of building code. It, as opposed to prescriptive, it was performance-based. I won't go on much about the difference. You may know about that. So um, the performance-based building code was something that 
was part of the perfect storm of elements that came together. That's the model I used that I borrowed, along with the whole influx of new materials, the progressive loss of industrial skills that happened in New Zealand during the era of Rogernomics, uh, in large part due to the loss of union training, as the unions were essentially put paid to in 1991. And so the perfect storm gave us a whole lot of buildings that rotted very quickly after they were built, some more quickly than others, but it's ongoing. I think I drifted away from what you asked me. What did you no, ask no, that, that's, that's true. So the building code okay. thing fascinates me because of what's going on oh. in Australia currently. they got performance-based code and it's producing buildings that are structurally unsound and falling down. Yeah. But the other thing is, I live in North America. When this happens, the lawyers, you know, it's like lawyers assemble and lawyers come in and the lawsuits commence. Did that happen in New Zealand? Yeah, there's been a fair amount of legal work here. And uh, we just had a huge lawsuit that um, lost a class action suit. Just it was been building up for years, and it was essentially thrown out finally about leaky homes up in the Auckland area. So yeah, lawyers, lots of lawyers, and um, lots of money, lots of people, lots of resources wasted on a huge problem that should never have happened in the first place. Just to put some story behind this, like the consequences for those that are other parts of the world that listen to the podcast, as an example, where retirees bought condominiums with their life savings. And of course, condominiums would multi-story family buildings would get, they would build up a contingency fee for long-term maintenance on the building. And every year, of course, the funds would be built up. But in many of these buildings, there was insufficient funds. And so when the leaky condos occurred, some of these people lost their houses. They didn't have sufficient income to pay for the repairs that were needed in the buildings. And it left people in destitute. So these are not small issues. These are social consequences that have long-reaching impact. And it's really unfortunate. Absolutely. And there are also some people in New Zealand who likewise couldn't pay, had no way out really, and who just had to keep on living in a house that made them sick. So all sorts of responses to this terrible situation have happened, and a fair bit of them are very sad. Yeah, I mean, and one of the challenges that certainly happened in Canada was a lot of the developments were done by numbered companies. So the builders would work with a design firm, they would construct it, the building would last as long as the warranty period was, and then these companies, the shell companies, would disappear. And then yeah. the failures occurred, and so... It was not just about the recourse that the owners, in terms of getting the buildings back up, but how do you hold people responsible when they're no longer in business? The lawyers, of course, are very good at it, you know, so it becomes a game between the legal representatives on each side of the aisle. And it's terrible because when you think about the millions of dollars in legal fees to battle these issues out that could have gone towards rectifying the buildings, it's money that's gone, right? I mean, the only people that went out of that one is the lawyers. Let's look at the victims, right? So the victims are the individual householders, right? The people who buy the homes. They suffer two losses, two injustices. There's a financial injustice, right? Because what they've bought doesn't perform and becomes a a locked asset. But also there's potential health costs, right? Through fungus and mold. How severe were the health impacts? Was there any documented severe health impacts? Yes, there is actually a a book, 2008-2009, an excellent book about the health impacts of leaky homes. And it's a collection of articles by a New Zealand scientists and doctors. Health is, is a big part of this, and I'm really glad that book came out. 
Yeah. So many questions in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's lots of questions and, and observations and comments because the story that's happening or happened in New Zealand and it will be ongoing for decades. There's no doubt about it because it's, and we see that it's happened all over the world. And there are organizations, Canadians for Properly Built Homes, run by Karen Somerville, who's a wonderful, smart, <laughs> determined woman who has really become the voice for Canadians who have suffered uh, the result of bad. Uh, construction practices. And we also see in other organizations in the U.S. that do the same. Has there been organizations in New Zealand developed to represent these people? There's one in particular I can think of, which was started by a man who had a leaky condo. And that's Homeowners and Buyers Association of New Zealand, H-O-B-A-N-Z, Hobans. And uh, that man is John Gray. That organization is still active and they've helped lots of New Zealanders who've been stuck in these awful buildings. And he, this man is an airline pilot, and his second calling is dealing with leaky homes. My dad was an airline pilot, and this man, John Gray, knows consequences of uh, lack of maintenance, deferred maintenance, sloppy building, anything. And uh, in the airlines, it's, um, you're risking death when that happens. So they're very careful about all of that, pre-flight checks and all that. Not so the New Zealand building industry, unfortunately. I say that as a generalization. One thing that people I talked to in the industry wanted to make clear to me, um, a fair number of them, was that there are some terrible buildings and terrible, and not just homes, schools, government buildings, hospitals, but there are also some very good builders who mm-hmm. are very careful about what they do and who care and who do it right. So, yeah, there are buildings that are built right the first time in New Zealand, but um, then there are all the, uh, the others. It's interesting you say that because that rings true here as well, that uh-huh. the Canadian home building industry and the Home Building Association, which is nationwide, comprised of provincial divisions, if you will, have programs, and particularly in British Columbia, that came out of the leaky condo crisis when the BC government and the BC Home Builders Association said, you know, we are better than this. We need to raise the bar because, and it was the good builders that stepped up and said, you know what, like we're getting tainted with a brush that doesn't apply to us. It's a result of those that are operating within the rule book, but bending the rules and then running away with the money. So I'm glad to hear you say that because there are in all of most countries that we, you know, our podcast is listened to, there are good builders and there are good architects and there's good engineers, but there is like any other profession, as we're finding out with COVID, there is within every profession really bad actors. That's right. Sometimes they're in charge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying funny. anything about the who right now. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that at all. <laughs> but to your point, Robert, it's really interesting, right? So one of the real problems with the construction industry is like all industries, there's good and bad, but the problem is the consequences for bad are just not there, right? Yeah. This is the problem. You know, if the, the consequences in the airline example, for the pilot example, something horrible happens there, people die, right? Horribly. Right. In construction, housing's a cult in the Anglosphere, right? I've got to buy a house. I must own a house. And you will put up with a lot of problems when you're in a cult, right? So that's one problem. But I've got to go back to the class action lawsuit. So there was clear damage. There were financial losses. There were people harmed financially and their health was impacted. How did that class lawsuit get dismissed? You know, I don't know exactly the reasons for it. I should know, but I couldn't tell you what 
grounds for dismissal there were. Um, it would be really in- interesting to find out, and I should know, but I don't. Sorry. I suspect that that case, although it may have been dismissed, that there will be other versions come up mm. as evidence keeps presenting itself, either yeah. the financial evidence, medical evidence, or both, that you'll see more and more. So let me put my Ron Swanson head on. He's a guy from Parks and Break, right? So he's the small government guy. He's the in this comedy show. He's the libertarian, the anti-government guy, yet he works for the local government. This is the joke, right? But, you know, clearly there's the building code or building regulations, which is performative. We'll come on to that about who certifies that. But was there any accountability or responsibility or, quite frankly, did any shit stick on anyone in, in government, local or federal? I don't know of anybody who lost their jobs, uh, as far as that goes. Were there questions asked in the House or at local government meetings about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were questions asked about it. One of the saddest areas of this, when you're talking about responsibility, is the New Zealand corporate regime. And uh, they have the same thing up north, I'm sure, but I think it's a little bit more extreme here. It's really easy to ring fence your losses and start a new corporation, and you're no longer liable. And there was an extreme example I cited in my book of a guy who did this repeatedly. And in fact, he had a number of his corporations were named Spare Corporation Number X, Spare Corporation Number Y, Spare <laughs> Corporation Number Z. He just went on and he wasn't liable anymore. He was not legally liable for the damage he left behind. I think it's easier here in New Zealand even than, than up north. Anyway, it's, it's ridiculously easy for somebody to absolve him or herself of responsibility for the mess they leave behind them. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show. So on the uh, building code or building regulations, I think they call it in New Zealand, the code is performative, which personally I'm a little bit of a fan of, actually. I like performative code because it allows you to do things. The real question with performative building code is the enforcement and the verification so the where Australia is having its current scandal is they went for self-certification, right? Okay. So the construction industry yeah. is horrible at innovation, but boy, is it good at lobbying. Yeah, there's a big self-certification regime here too, especially yeah. in Auckland, because there's so many builders and so many houses, the council can't possibly get to all the buildings, all the houses and, and have a look. So they have... Um, self-certification. And the, the idea is if the builder screws up, they're off the list. But it, it doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling that no. builders are certifying their work. Again, there are lots of good builders who are meticulous and who will you can trust. But then there's room for the others. And that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, this whole, unless you have independent third-party verification, any performative specification, yeah, how do you enforce that, right? At the moment, a builder has a meeting with himself and decides he's awesome and says, right, we're good to go, right? (laughs) Yeah. We do have performance-based building code, but several years after it came into effect, it came up with what they call acceptable solutions. Uh, And these are prescriptive. This is for people who weren't comfortable with a performance-based code. And then 
So there are prescriptive sections of the building code which say acceptable solution number one for a building. It has to be built exactly like this. Yeah. And, and they give the prescription. So um, some builders uh, think of that as the building code, actually. And they're, of course, free to do that. But actually, the, it's still overall a performance-based building code. So it's either you either choose a performance uh, approach or a prescriptive approach, or probably sometimes there's a mixture. So those prescriptive options arose, I think, uh, in part due to people not just really understanding what's a performance-based code. I don't yeah. get it. And um, it was very new in New Zealand. And um, it can be very amorphous, very fuzzy. And it's uh, up to exactly how specific what your, the performance is laid down and exactly how the inspector interprets that. And uh, there were so many problems with that. And, and one thing, when it first came out, the performance-based building code, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase unfunded mandate. So it was an entirely new, entirely foreign set of building controls that nobody knew anything about. And the government said, here it is, in six months, we're going to go to this. And um, people in council, I talked to people who have been on in, uh, councils and um, builders in general, basically saying, WTF, yeah. Yeah. what is this? And um, how do we do it? How, you know, all these questions came about. There was no educational effort, whatever, involved. No money spent on education and very little time given. Somehow the magic of the free market would just take care of everything and um, self-select and we'll all be uh, living great houses and we'll all pay a lot less money. Yeah. In Canada, we had uh, what was called Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It was a division of kind of a third arm division of Canada's NRC program, I believe, Building Institute of Research and Construction. Anyways, when Canadians of a certain income level went to apply for a mortgage, uh, they had to meet a certain criteria for that house. And when the house was built, it was a CMHC inspector that went out. It was a government representative that went out to ensure that the house was being built according to the building code that they were underwriting. Now, when the Canadian government collapsed that service, we started to see problems increase in Canada housing stock. And it was a result of the lack of government inspection for these government-funded mortgages. And then it got worse. <laughs> and, um, we had a certain government that came in, this was a few years ago, and they, they basically collapsed all the research work that Canada used to do in housing. At one time, we were the darling in the world. I mean, people would come to Canada and they would look at the research work that we did for cold climates. And that money was removed from the researchers and the institute. And as a result of that, again, lack of information. And it was only until the leaky condo crisis that caused a problem that the BC government and the BC Home Building Association stepped up. And now they are the ones that are producing documents that are world-class. And unfortunately, that in between the time when someone steps up and someone has stepped away or stepped down or got fired or whatever the cause was, you have society that becomes the victims. So we have, in our case, and likely what we'll see other parts of the world is that there's a period of time that uh, people bought assets that have no value and there's no recourse for them and it's a terrible situation. So there's likely hope for New Zealand and other parts of the world too. Well, somebody will step up and I don't know, maybe that's happened now, has it? 
not, you know, nobody's come along to magically fix the building industry that I know of, but um, hopefully things will get better. There are builders here who are doing great work, but we're in the middle of a, one of our yet another building boom. And when that happens, you know, there's time pressure, there's money pressure, get the job done and move on to the next one. And um, the results of building booms in the past seem to have been somewhat less than desirable overall. Lots of money for the developers, maybe some uh, builders get making some good money too, but maybe not so happy overall for some of the people who have to live in these places. I'd love to be wrong. I hope I am. Uh, to quote Charles Dickens, the building boom is the best of times and the worst of times, right? But yeah, really, best. when you analyze it, the only people to make money out of property are the property developers and owners. Everyone else is a hired person, including the builders, including the architects, including the engineers. They just don't see themselves that way, but they are. They're hired help. What I want to quickly talk about and ask you about is the journalism aspect to this. So I personally believe journalism is a pillar of democracy and freedom. See what's going on in Hong Kong, right? So without, this is a great example of investigative journalism. Everybody was like, someone, you specifically, investigated this, brought it together and shone light on an issue, right? And effectively showed who the bad guys were. So thank you for doing that, because without that, I think society has a problem. But did you suffer any, once it was published and it was out in the public realm, did you have any pushback from industry or anyone? Did any people push back on you once you published? Not really. The only sort of questioning that I can remember came from uh, one of the architects who think who thought I who was on the same side, but thought that I hadn't quite interpreted some of the history correctly. Right. But, you know, he's a little grumpy about that, but not too much. And no, I haven't gotten any threats or anything like that. No nasty grams. Yeah. No, no nasty grams. Not really. <laughs> yeah, that's a good phrase. Yeah, no one following you to the shops and back. <laughs> that was my old trick. <laughs> no. Nobody following me that I know of. And if there are people following me, I don't know about it. So I'm happy. So, <laughs> this is interesting. Uh, I don't because think I'm nearly important enough figure to be for people to do that. When you publish something like Rotonomics, there's two ways to deal with it. You ignore it. And you don't give it oxygen, so it sort of goes away. Or you attack it viciously and bury it, right? And they've obviously gone with it. Let's just ignore it and see what happens. But it stands as a record, right? So if you as an American, you could ask your senator to read it into the congressional record as a record of what happened. Is there a way of doing that in New Zealand? Is there any way to get it on the record officially at government level? No idea. I guess it might be interesting to find out about that. Just a thought, right? Because... Now and again, when egregious things happen in the States, I follow American politics a lot because two of my kids are American, so I sort of have, a, have an interest in it. And uh, when some egregious things happen like this, some brave senators sometimes read things into the record so that they're yeah. there, right? I can you know, remember that, yeah. Can't get buried, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, we live in, uh, in Canada and New Zealand, the sort of Westminster parliamentary democracies. I don't know if that exists there. Yeah, it's a parliamentary democracy here as well. Yeah. I I just like things, bad things should not get buried and bad actors should be identified. So for me, it's about making sure the lights are on and showing what's going on, right? And that's why I wanted to do this interview with you, uh, to be a small part of that. Yeah, I agree. There are people who are doing work here along those lines who are much more likely to 
incur that kind of situation than I am. All I've called out is mainly government figures from the past, a few in the present, but closest I got to doing that was um, the issue with the second report where the government said, well, first they said there is no such report. And then they said, well, we can't release it to you. And then finally the ombudsman said, yeah, yes, you will. You'll release it to them. And they, but it took 14 months. Wow. So I haven't really, in my book, called up anybody, any personally on the line that I know of. It really wasn't my goal. Yeah. My goal was to more examine the forces behind it and the philosophy and just what made people in government and the industry decide to pursue this particular course. And a lot of it was, you know, and especially in industry, a lot of it was self-interest, of course. But I don't know if anybody had any motivation more than good old-fashioned greed. I haven't run into any much of the darker side that you're talking about, cover-ups like that. It's almost frustrating sometimes not to because sometimes here it's not necessary. Um, Cover-ups aren't necessary because people just lose interest. Yeah. So you're there waving the flag saying, hey, look at this. And people go, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's on the telly? Yeah. But even that's a little bit unfair. I got a lot of good response from this from people who were, especially from people who've been directly affected by that. And that's, that meant the world to me. When people come back and listen to this episode, you know, we are in the third year of a global pandemic. The underlying DNA of your book has applications on a much more macro scale with managing COVID. And there are a number of groups who are strongly populated by scientists that have understood the root of the problem going back 2019 that have been as vocal as they possibly can and being ignored by government and by organizations like the WHO and people within the WHO who've made statements early on and then have since changed those statements. But now after two years, it's been too late. Consequences been millions of people have died and countless others have become ill. If it wasn't for these voices, like your voice in New Zealand and like these voices around the world, we would not be as aware of the problems that we have. And Adam, you know, you you have a great philosophy on some of this stuff, but I don't know, like on a macro scale, how does the global society, we're aware of these issues, but how do we address it? Where's the correction or where's the steps for correction that we can, where we can see that we're actually improving as opposed to going down the toilet? Because that's really what we see now. And it doesn't matter whether it's Peter's book in New Zealand or the pandemic that we have now. The greatest untapped power in the world is aggregate consumer demand. So if you don't believe me, everyone had a BlackBerry once right till Steve Jobs bought out the iPhone and the consumers went, you know what, BlackBerry, I think we're done. Gone, right? One day, consumers will break out of the cult of home ownership and rebel against the horrible products that are given to them in housing. But there's two parts to this in housing. One is consumers have to rebel and go on strike. And two, Governments, local and national, have to enable buildings to be built. There needs to be more buildings and to be built better, quicker and faster, right? But there's two parts to it. We need, I mean, the planning process in the UK, where I'm working at the moment, is so long. It takes a year to two years to get planning consent, right? That's just too long in a housing shortage. So you've got constricted demand. 
you've got no consequences for bad work, and you've got a buy-in public that are in a collective hallucination and cult that will, if you put a window on a roof on anything, you can sell it to someone, right? But it all starts with a consumer strike. Mm. Stop buying horrible houses. Stay where you are. Don't participate. You watch how things change when the demand goes down. But easy for me to say, right, old white guy with money. Well, yeah. That's a little rant there. Sorry, I'm getting a bit... <laughs> But you've got to think of it, right? A house is a consumable. You don't buy your car and expect it to go up in money, right? And you buy your car and you expect it to start every time. You know what? My car starts every time. It could be minus 30 outside like it is now. My car, every time. Your house is not like that. So uh, to quote the professor of project management in Oxford University, he says, cars have been around for 100 years and they don't leak and they start and they're reliable and they're awesome. Right? And they've gone down in price relative to, to inflation. Housing's been around for 4,000 years. It leaks, it's horrible, and the price has gone up in excessive inflation every year. What is going on? Yeah. yeah. Good observation. Question. Yeah. So, Peter, we're wrapping up. I just want to ask you one more question. Obviously, this was a long project for you, and you obviously got sucked in. You know, the, the details, you started uncovering stuff, you went in and in. Would you do it again if you had to do it? Absolutely. I might do it a little more quickly. <laughs> good. But I learned a lot along the way and I've met a lot of interesting people. And um, it was really gratifying to get all this information together to learn. I mean, actually, the research is always, for me, is always the best part. I love yeah. picking into stuff and learning things. And then writing, well, that's okay, but it's harder work. Just finding out stuff, that's the real fun. And um, if I do another one, I'll just try to do it more efficiently. Actually, I am working on something, so we'll, okay, we'll see. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah thank you. We'll see if yeah. I, I don't even know if I'm 68 years old, I better better get to it. <laughs> well, you got at least another 30, 40 years ahead of you. Yeah, You'll yeah. be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the, in the, that's the key. Where all the rich people are going, so there must be something good going on down there. Oh, yeah. There's definitely something good going on here. You, you said... Uh, You'll be fine, Robert. There's a Kiwi phrase. She'll be right. He'll be right. (laughs) That was um, a problem with the building industry. She'll be right. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago, it used to work, but it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cultural artifact, right? She'll be right, mate. That's how we're going to have a cup of tea, right? There you go. Yeah. You know, you said something there. Normally, we ask them. Rapid fire questions. I don't know, Adam, if that was your rapid fire question that yeah, you it was just really, asked. Yeah. Yeah. And mine was going to be related to the students, but you've already mentioned it. And that is, is that, you know, the research work is fun. Writing it is arduous. <laughs> well, it, it can be arduous. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not really as fun as the research. Let's put it that way. But it is fun to eventually to get it all down and see it take shape and then give it to your wife. Yeah, <laughs> the ultimate uh, editor. Oh, <laughs> oh, no, she is the editor, and um, without her, it never would have happened. Not yeah. only because she was a great editor, but because she put up with it for so long, <laughs> let me have my way with it. And, yeah. Uh, so without her, it wouldn't have happened. So for the students that listen to the, this particular episode, doing the research work when you're putting together your thesis or whatever paper, whatever it is that you're doing, I mean that is the fun part. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, what is left behind 
is a consolidation of what you've learned. And so yeah. it is the voice of your research and that and and it so it behooves you to put the best effort that you can and it will be hard and it will be long and it takes a lot of work and there's going to be people who are going to critique it and you need to embrace the critique. I remember when I, I've written a number of books and publications and I remember one editor who was brutal. <laughs> it got to a point where I actually didn't look forward to talking with her, but at the end of the day, had it not been for her eyes and her grasp of the language, you know, the document would have sucked. I, I admit that. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's written a book understands that pain, I think. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Peter, we'll wrap up there. I just want to thank you for writing that book because stories like these must be told. And thank you for being a great example of an investigative journalist in a niche that most people aren't looking at, but I'm glad you did. Yeah, thank Thank you. you Thank you both, Adam and Robert. Um, Thanks for your time and for allowing me to um, join you and express myself in my own sometimes awkward way. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time and for your interest in this. It's um, yeah. you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to meet you, man. Take care. Likewise. All best. Bye. Yeah. Bye. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, are we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> Adam, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Gotta go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767 and also check out the July 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. So glad you found out about Peter and his book. It has a lot of parallel stories with the mess that we're in today. Yeah. Pretty brave. No, well, I would say brave. You know, he's a journalist. And I think you you brought up some good points about the power of journalism. And uh, his sort of digging into that story was is 
going to serve New Zealanders for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's that story is as old as time, right? That story is applicable to Australia, to Canada, everywhere. There's a mature, sort of like well-developed construction market. There's malarkey going on everywhere in a construction market, right? Yeah. The only difference is, is it a lot or is it not? But without people like Peter, like really getting into it and finding out what's going on and informing people, you don't know, right? It's an important record. I actually think his book is a record, which is why I was talking about having things mm. read into a record, because the politicians involved, put involved, have all retired now, and it's all fading away, right? And then a new generation of buyers come in, they don't have this memory, and the whole thing, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, right? Which is why these books as a record matter. And my core values revolve around freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and journalism is one of the key principles of making that happen. Without the ability of journalists to hold people's feet to the fire, you're not free. Yeah, I, I agree. I was shocked, and there's still a question in my mind, that Price Waterhouse would publish the report to the government and then have a second report or the government edit that data and then Price Waterhouse republish the government's report. Does that, did I hear that right? Yeah, so they're one of the big four, right? There's Price Waterhouse Cooper, then there's like others like our friends. But there's a scandal going on at the moment. So Caribbean, who went bust in the UK and Canada the other year, their auditors, which is one of the big four, uh, it mm. wasn't Price Waterhouse Cooper, it was one of the other ones, they were just sign- auditing the accounts and signing them off. All right, so they're auditing the accounts and signing them off, but they're getting paid to audit the accounts. That's a proper thing, right? Yeah, right. Professional liability there. And the accounts were audited and signed off about two or three months before they went down the toilet with no money. Now they're going through an investigation as to what happened there. What are they going to get? Slap on a wrist, a fine? Look at uh, SNC-Lavalin and the stuff that went on within their organization. There's a huge engineering, global engineering powerhouse that was doing stuff that was unscrupulous. And you can't tell me that the board of directors and those that were leading that company didn't go to bed at night worrying if they were going to get caught or not. (laughs) You know, like insane, right? And then when you get these big, like PwC, it's infuriating that these individuals... We should dig, well, I don't know, we don't have time to dig into it, but anybody that's out there, journalists, yeah. dig into these stories. Why is it that a big auditing company like that can publish a report based on existing data, have it received by the government, edited, republished, and then they republish the edited report? It's, it's that just stinks. There's, uh, there's two journalists on the Globe and Mail, I can't remember their names, but they're doing sort of similar great work. So... You know, the sacred cow that is the P3 or PPP procurement system in Ontario. So infrastructure Ontario procure all the hospitals through the P3 process, right? Yeah. The myth is that it's, yeah, the public sector's got it. It's not the taxpayer's dime. If you believe that, I have a bridge I want to sell you right now. Right? Yeah. But anyway, that aside, there was one project, St. Michael's Hospital, and it was just mired in, construct- in corruption, cronyism, backhanders, the job... They had to be bailed out. The taxpayer had to bail it out, or infrastructure Ontario, which is the taxpayer, it's all been directed, had to bail it out to millions of dollars. Court cases going on, people possibly going to jail. The only way that came out was for investigative journalism. So if you're a student coming into this business, you should know there's lots of mischief and corruption and cronyism. And there's, that exists in every business, every, right? Yeah, it's... Uh... Right? But you want to be in the business where when it is found and discovered, something happens. 
you don't just have a game of golf and a steak and a glass of beer and everything's all right, miraculously, right? That's yeah. the problem with our business. The consequences are just not there. It's funny you say that because what came to my mind right away is, and we were talking about this earlier on, is uh, collecting some old books. And I have some from the 19th century that deal with architecture and viruses and bacteria. And one of them, it was a physician and he was giving advice to architects. So so this, again, going back into the 1800s. And it basically was, is that when an architect is faced with a committee of people who are ignorant, motivated by other means that could lead to disdain to the reputation of the architect, you need to walk away. Yeah. Otherwise, you will face the consequences of having to deal with these idiots. <laughs> and there's a message there for kids, you know, yeah. and, and when you, basically, I know in Canada, and I'm sure in the United States too, is that when you get a professional license in order to get that, you have to take a course or courses yeah. on ethics yeah. and engineering. And it's drilled into you. Every time you do something that's unethical, you've basically put your license and your livelihood on the line. There's one thing here we're talking about in this whole episode. It's integrity, mm-hmm. personal, governmental, institutional. Sure. Right? So when you have a performative building code that is self-certified with the best will in the world, when you stop laughing, you can't say that's a high integrity system. Right? <laughs> All right. But if you're coming, I don't yeah. want to, I wouldn't want this to put, people off coming into this business, but you've got to come into this business with high integrity, with the integrity of being your word and having high integrity. And when you're faced with the situation you're talking about with the architect facing people who, you know, can't you just do this? Can't you just do that? That's when you find out who you are. Yep. You find yep. out if you've got integrity on it, when someone's waving a holiday at you or an envelope with money at you for you to look the other way. That is a yeah. moment of truth where you find out who you really are. Great point, Adam. And I, when you think about professionals and what keeps professional industries, doesn't matter, accounting, law, medical, aviation, engineering, whatever it is, it's those that have maintained integrity, ethical commitment to yeah. the health and safety that retains the perception of that industry. We look highly upon physicians. We look highly upon the firefighting industry. We look highly upon the air pilot industry because of the responsibility that they accept for the health and safety of the public. And for those listening right now, the public health, infection, disease prevention and control have, for lack of a better term, shit in their own bed. They have done such a bad job and they have walked away from their ethical obligations to society. And caveat here, same thing. There are good infectious disease doctors that have stood up and have fought for the health and safety of the public. But there are so many of them that have turned their eye on it. They have cognitive dissonance and it's occurred all over the world on a mass scale. And these people will be held accountable. And the profession right now is under scrutiny because leadership at the top has turned their back on what's important. Yeah. So the other the other takeaway, someone might be listening to think, well, I have a low power person. I'm in the mid levels or low levels or worse. But if you see that in your organization, if you see your organization doing bad things, letting things slide, if you know corruption, leave. Don't yeah. leave immediately and so you can't pay your mortgage. Find another job and move. That yeah. is not an organization you want to be associated with, right? So I'll give you an example of a high-tech organization. I used to work for Arab in New York. They 
where were some jobs they would just say, it's not for me. I asked my boss in New York, why don't you work in Vegas, all these new buildings? This is 20 years ago, right? When Vegas yeah. was built up. He said, can't do it. It's too corrupt. I don't want to be in that situation, right? So they would have got tons of work if they'd opened an office in Vegas. They didn't. They took a stand. They're not yeah. saying everyone's bad there, but they didn't want to be even associated with the possibility of having that taint. So, you know, mm. I sort of respected yeah. that in the end when I sort of got over the fact they walked away from a lot of money. But as an individual, you can do mm. that, right? If I like working for Arab because their high integrity, I was hoping would brush off on me. And it was high integrity by association. I was a nobody, but they were somebody, right? But they were a high integrity organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can. Do you think you can't make a difference? You can. Because if enough people leave low integrity organizations, you know what? They don't survive. Anyway, we're getting a Yeah, and if, and if you don't, that will follow you for your entire career. Yeah. You cannot run from that. Once you get tainted with that brush, taking payoffs, corruption, turning a blind eye, sliding documents through that shouldn't have gone through, looking at errors and calculation and saying it'd be fine, all of that will, will yeah. haunt you for the rest of your life. So yeah. hearing lesson learned for those that are getting into the profession. And but that applies to every profession, as you said. I mean, let's yeah. let's be clear here. This construction and engineering doesn't stand out alone. There's lots of professions that have that. Oh, yeah, there's lots of professions. It's just Somehow, construction in particular is awesome at lobbying and terrible at innovation and change. Right? Mm. It's just—I always thought someone like Elon Musk or Google would break this up a bit and like fix it. Still hasn't happened, right? Yeah. I don't know yeah. what the answer is, but you know, it's people <laughs> like Peter. Getting back to Peter, you know, books like that matter. They're a record. Maybe. Have you ever thought about this, Adam, that maybe Musk wants to go to Mars because that's when he can start a brand new construction industry because <laughs> he's given up on the on the one on planet Earth. I don't know. So, so I, wrote, I wrote about that once in a blog piece. I think my line was, it was easier for Elon Musk to shoot his car into space than build a building with no defects. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know what? More people yeah. like Peter, I say, more books like that. Get them in the record. and. If you're a practitioner or you're young in your career, you should read books like this so you know malfeasance and mischief when you see it. Yeah, totally. Absolutely, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Good advice. Good advice. Getting a bit highfalutin here, but you know, sometimes integrity matters. That is one of the real things you have control over and you should not jeopardize it because if you know you've done something wrong, you can't even walk away from that because it's in you, right? It's inside you, chipping away at you. Yeah. Right? It's always yeah, there. For sure. I want to go out a high note, so. Alright, Ben. I'll see you on the next one. Alright. <laughs> Cheers, bud. Yeah, see you, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex Podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.